Good morning. Please be seated. There are many terms used in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, to reveal and explain this thing we call salvation, our salvation. That is, how God achieves his purpose in restoring sinners and turning us into saints. For example, justification, redemption, regeneration, and there are a host of others, all necessary, and each one describing a different facet of God's work in our lives. Think of it as a diamond that has different facets all around. It's really not complete without all of them. But this morning I want to offer for your consideration one of my favorites, reconciliation. What a beautiful word. We've all seen ads on television or in print in which there are two pictures, a before picture and an after picture. The before picture will show someone, say, with crooked teeth or rough, dry skin or some other malady, followed by the after picture, which shows the amazing results that will be yours if you just use their product often. Well, obviously, these ads work because they still keep making them. Well, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossae, an ancient city located in what is now Greek, uh, uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, reminds the Christians of that city that they, and meaning we also, also have a past. We have an after and a before, a before and an after life. Life, what life was like before Christ, and what is life is like now after Christ. And in verse 21, he describes them as those who were once in the past, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's the before, the bad news. Now notice God is not alienated from us. We are alienated from God. The evidence of which Paul says is that we are hostile in our mind doing evil deeds. It would be bad enough if we were simply indifferent to our creator, but no. Paul says we actively bring about our alienation, our evil deeds being the proof of a mindset that is already hostile to God. And all of us naturally resent authority. We, there's just something within us that, that resists that. Uh, I jokingly used to say uh, at a previous church of mine, that, not that this was a problem, that if, if we made signs and a rule and, and posted it everywhere, there will be no flying of kites from the steeple and from the, the roof of the church. No, none of that. Now, that had never happened, but I promise you some kid would have gone out there and flown a kite from the top of the church because we told him not to. That's our nature, and we do that especially with God's authority. As the prophet Isaiah said, even to the people of Israel, the Old Testament covenant people of Israel, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now that, again, is the bad news. Let's move on to the good news. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh. How? By his death. Notice that our reconciliation to God is said to be in the present tense. Now, it's not some, just a future hope, but it, 
Now, there is a future aspect of our salvation, of course, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it is now a present reality. The means by which this peace is achieved is not from us. God is the one who makes the peace. That's remarkable when you think about it. We're the ones who have caused the problem. We have created the breach. And yet it is not us, but God, rather, who makes the peace. How? By his own death. Yes, you heard right. By God's own death. Verse, verses 19 and 24. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's the ultimate cosmic redemption and, and uh, renewal of, of the earth and everything in it. Uh, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Beloved, if anything on this planet is amazing, use an overused phrase, this is truly amazing. Thus Charles, Charles Wesley's great hymn, the refrain of which uh, is, is this, absolutely nails it when he says, amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And if you think about that long and hard, you will be equally amazed. It is, it is not only good news, as you'll hear me often say, it is great news. It is the best news you could possibly hear. Reconciliation. That is a beautiful way to describe our salvation. Is it not wonderful to see just those around us, families, brothers, sisters, parents, children, spouses, co-workers, in their alienation? the hostility, and finally make peace. That's a glorious thing. July the 1st, 1863. In a tiny town in the rolling hills of Pennsylvania, a battle was fought, and that battle was what? Gettysburg, many of you know that. Turned out it was the key battle in the war between the states, also known as the American Civil War to some of you. The three-day battle ended with over 51,000 Casualties, And this in a day before modern weaponry and all the, the stuff that, that, that can uh, be done these days. The three-day battle ended with 51,000 casualties, that is, dead, wounded, or missing. Among my own ancestors were six distant uncles and cousins who were in this battle. Two of them were killed. Two were wounded. But 50 years later, in 1913, there was a ceremony. A reunion of soldiers, north and south, by the thousands, who met once again on that consecrated and hallowed ground, as Lincoln called it, but not in combat, but rather in a ceremony of reconciliation. If you've never seen the film footage of this, this is just a, a photograph, but there's film footage of this that has, has survived all down through the years. It's quite good, but it is a powerful sight to behold. As these brave men, who once were mortal enemies, now greet one another, embrace one another as friends. Now as compelling, as powerful, and beautiful as that event was, it pales in comparison with our being reconciled to God. And it differs in several ways. I'll just mention a few. When people reconcile, there's usually some blame on both sides, isn't there? Not always, but usually. Thus, there is often the need for apologies, for forgiveness on both sides. It's not that way with God. Why? All the blame is on us. There's no middle ground. There are no concessions to be offered. There's no give or take. We do not meet God halfway. In fact, we're actually going the opposite direction. 
We're, we're sheep who've gone astray. We're running away from the shepherd. And then often before reconciliation, there must be restitution. There must be payment for damages. And, and before there can be real reconciliation, that has to be taken care of. But spiritually, in our case, again, we come up short. Not only do we not have assets, as it were, spiritually, we're actually bankrupt, broke, zero, all negative. God is rich, isn't he? God is rich in mercy, the scriptures tell us. Romans 8.32, Paul describes God as he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. It is the innocent one, the spotless lamb of God, who bears the cost of our reconciliation, making peace by the blood of his cross, as Paul puts it. The believers at Colossae were the glad recipients of that peace. And this morning, I pray that you could say with them the same. But I would be negligent. I would be derelict in my duty if I did not include in this same passage the apostle's words of warning, his words of caution. Again, in verse 22, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, this is what I spoke of a moment ago, the final chapter in our salvation. It will occur on the last day. And in almost all of Paul's letters, he refers to this. When our Savior returns, the day of judgment, when our transformation into the image of Christ will be completed. Paul tells the Colossians later in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, how can Paul be so sure of that? Paul had never met them. He had never even been to the city of Colossae. But note the next word, the tiny but oh-so-important word in many settings, but especially here, if. All this will be true if, and just, not just an ordinary if, this is an if indeed. In other words, if sure enough, if absolutely, if for certain, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Those are, those are terms that were used by, by builders in those days, talking about the foundations of buildings. You don't get the foundation right, nothing's going to be right. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, this in itself raises a great many questions, such as, can we really know that we're saved? What about once saved, always saved? Can we lose our salvation? Can a person begin as a believer and then walk away from the faith? I mean, are, are they saved? Were they never saved? Were they saved and lost it? All these questions. It would take me from now until next Sunday preaching constantly to completely answer all those questions. But what I offer you here in these moments are helpful points, some, some helpful things for you to consider in this matter. One thing, this is not a matter of God helps those who help themselves. By the way, that's not in the Bible. Now you laugh, you laugh, but there are a lot of people who believe it is. And, and if you are, just keep that to yourself. Then, okay. No, it's not in the Bible, but it, you know, to some people, it, and the reason why I smile at the thought of that is, it is quite the opposite. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless, as the great hymn says, help of the helpless. O oh Lord, abide in me. 
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And you have to, that is your core by which you understand much of the rest of Scripture. But salvation is also not just about getting into heaven. I honestly think some people think it's about like booking a ticket on a plane or a bus or a train. You, you get your get your seat assignment, okay, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm ready to go. Well, no, that's not really how it works either. Jesus calls us, but he calls us to be followers, disciples, to become like him. Now, we're never going to become like him completely in this life. That's why, again, in Paul's letters, he speaks of the day of Christ when we will be ultimately all of that would become ours, and we will exactly be and be like Jesus. We will never fully achieve that in this life, but what do we do in the meantime? We press on in our faith, in our confidence in the gospel, and we continue to grow in Christ's likeness. And if you've seen me illustrate before, it's it's not just this straight line that we go up like a skyrocket or a, a firework. No, it's almost never that way for anyone if, if indeed it is but rather it's more like this it's more like the stock market charts right uh, and but hopefully we are continuing to press on and this is not again a matter of god does his part but we have to do our part no 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 that's not it either because all of our growing in christ our persevering through the difficulties is fueled and energized by the holy spirit i mean paul could tell the corinthians I, I, I got above all the things that God had, had done through him. I worked harder than them all, and yet he follows that immediately by saying, yet it wasn't I, but it was the grace of God working in me. And both are true. Paul can tell the believers at Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John likewise says in his first letter, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants his children to have that kind of assurance. He doesn't want us walking around all day, wringing our hands, worrying about, am I really a child of God? Am I not? Uh, that stresses us out royally. But that assurance only comes through the Holy Spirit. I've had countless people come to me with these kinds of doubts and fears, and I remind them, I, cannot, I don't know your heart. I don't know the true state of your soul. Only God can give you assurance. And it comes by the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote to the Romans, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But if we are careless, if we neglect what is sometimes called the ordinary means of grace, things like prayer, worship, service to others, fellowship, and, and so on and so forth. If we, if we neglect those things, if we tolerate known sin in our lives, if we grieve the Spirit by those things, our assurance will quickly turn to doubt. And our confidence, and here's the warning, our confidence may instead be presumption of the worst kind. Let me share something with you from the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. It's the doctrinal standard of the Christian Reformed Church. Very first question. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer. That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. That he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, note, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's really good. Our assurance can only come by the Holy Spirit, and it is the consistent, continual walk of faith and obedience that saves us. Not making a profession of faith, but heeding the Spirit's call to remain, as Paul has said in our text, stable and steadfast in our, conf steadfast in our confidence in the gospel. And one final thought from Paul's words to the church in Corinth about this matter of reconciliation. He uses reconciliation there to describe his life's work and that of his fellow workers. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 5. All this, meaning the blessings that he had just elaborated of our being in Christ, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, Paul says, meaning himself and his colleagues, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Much like today, an ambassador in those days was a spokesperson representing a ruler or a king or other official who, just as it is in our day, does not offer his opinions or thoughts. I've, I've read, although I couldn't find any specifics, that there are ambassadors who've lost their job for that very thing, for stating their opinion instead of what the president or the prime minister or whomever was the one who they should have been representing. He does not offer his opinions or thoughts, but those are the ones he represents. And so it is with Paul and his colleagues. God sent them as bearers of the good news, the gospel, so much so that he could say that it was not him or his co-workers making this appeal, but God, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, he says, we urge you, we beg of you, be reconciled to God. And this same appeal goes out today. Whenever and wherever the word of God is faithfully and in the power of the Spirit proclaimed, and so this morning, if you're a stranger to the grace of God, if you do not know, as Paul said, that I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but it's not I, it's Christ in me. If you don't, if you don't have that kind of assurance for your salvation, I urge you, I implore you. But actually it is God himself making this appeal. I urge you, be reconciled to God. Maybe you say, well, I'm not really sure what that looks like, and you've raised a lot of questions for me. That's, that's probably the case with some. Then speak to someone. Speak to a trusted Christian friend. Speak to, to one of us, any of the clergy people, or any other uh, brother or sister in Christ, and, and explore that. God, God urges you to do that, and so do I. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we will spend eternity singing your praises and beholding the wonder of what I've just spoken of in these few moments.
the wonder that our God actually came and became one of us and died in our place that we might have eternal life. And Father, I pray for each person here, each person in the sound of my voice, that, that we would all search our own hearts and, and say, I, I need to have that kind of assurance. I need to know that I am truly a child of God. And I pray that you would give us all the grace and the strength and the courage to continue to persevere steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.